to be back together this evening, and I'm thankful for each of you who are here. Some of you have driven some distance to join us, and uh, on behalf of the congregation, of course, myself, I want to thank you for the effort that you've put out to come and be with us and heartily welcome you. I hope you'll that your schedule is such that you'll be able to stick around afterwards and visit with members of the congregation here. You'll find them to be a very warm and loving and friendly group, and I know you'll be blessed by your time here. Thank you. You and the church brings it down to an individual level. Those are two, in a sense, kind of opposite terms. In the specific sense of you is an individual term. It's about one person. Whereas the church is a corporate term, it's, it's a collective term. And by its very nature, it's about a group of people. Our English word church finds its root in the word circle. And some people are concerned about using the word church to translate terms that we find in the New Testament. And they, you know, there's concern about the accuracy of that. But when you think of the church as a circle you can kind of see why that word really fits because it's a circle of God's people, okay? And so keep that in mind as we think about the church tonight and your relationship with the church. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Christ thought the church was pretty important because there he made a promise to his disciples. He said, I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the idea of the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church, that used to kind of puzzle me a little bit. And, and it, maybe it would puzzle at least a few of you, but it'll make more sense when you think about it in terms of the resurrection of Christ. Here's what Jesus is telling them. Devil wants to use the grave to stop me from building my kingdom, and I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to build my church and the gates to the grave won't stop that. It's a left-handed way of Christ foretelling His resurrection, but not just saying He's going to be raised from the dead, but saying that that would happen in an all-out battle with the devil trying to stop Him and defeat His purposes in establishing His circle of people. He's serving notice that the devil's going to lose. Now, think about it this way. If the devil was so concerned about keeping the church from being established that he was willing even to use debt to try to stop that from happening, then he must have thought the church was pretty important. The devil was very interested in Christ not having a church. And I want you to think about that tonight in light of something we hear from a lot of people today and have for a few years now that, oh well, the church doesn't matter. Oh well, the church isn't important. Oh well, you don't have to go to church. Oh well, you can serve God just fine outside the church. Oh well, I'm not much on organized religion anyway. And I'm going to tell you, on Judgment Day, it won't matter what folks feel about organized religion. What matters is the will of God. And the will of God is such that He sent His Son to earth and into the realm of the dead to battle Satan one-on-one -on -one so that he could establish his church. And God doesn't put out that kind of effort on an institution that doesn't matter. So let's right out of the gate dismiss the world's lie that the Lord's church doesn't matter and let's embrace the importance that the Lord placed on His church 
when he told his disciples on that distant day in Matthew 16, here's what I'm going to do, and the devil's going to lose the battle trying to stop me from doing it. The church matters, and so it should matter to you as you think about you and the church. And we see this church established in Acts 2 where Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel. We find there were some there whose hearts were pricked by the gospel and they obeyed the gospel. And notice what the text says about those that obeyed. In Acts 2 and 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then we skip to verse 47 to find out their status as that work continued. And there we find them praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So what we find in verse 41, that those who obeyed the gospel and were saved were added to their number or to the church. We find that repeated in verse 47, the same idea. Those that were saved, those that responded favorably to the gospel and obeyed the gospel, the Lord added them to their number, to the circle, to the church. Okay? And so that's when the Lord's church, you might say, was officially established or came into being. Brought into power and being by His death and resurrection and the victory He had over Satan. So it matters because it's the circle of the saved. Now, what about you and the church? I want to tell you that as it relates to the church and in terms of the way I want to illustrate it in our study this evening, I want to tell you there's three kinds of relationships with the church. There are those that go to church. Now, I know some people say you can't go to church, that the word church doesn't means something that you can go to. Well, you can go to a circle, so you can go to the church, okay? And if you came here tonight, you came to the circle of God's people, so you come to church, and we're glad. So you can go to church. There are those, hang on, we double-clutched here. Let me back up. There are those that are in the church. That is, they don't just attend the service from time to time or as a regular habit attend the service, but they have done what those people in Acts 2 did. They have obeyed the gospel, and the Lord has made them members of the church. He has added them to His circle of people. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing to go to church, but it's even better to be in the church. But then there are those that are the church. Now, if you're well acquainted with what the New Testament teaches about being in the church or a member of the body, you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, if you are in the church, you are the church because the church isn't the building, the church is God's people. And that's very true. I understand that. I'm expressing it this way on this third point to try to emphasize how the world sees God's people. When I say there are those that are in the church, but then there are those that are of the church, by that I mean there are some that are the face of the church to the world. There are those that are in it, yes, but there are others that are the church as far as what the world sees 
and experiences in those. And I want to tell you a little story to illustrate this. And this is based on a true story, okay? It's like when you watch a movie, and the movie at the beginning, it says based on a true story. And what they mean by that is it's loosely based on a true story, but we're changing some of the details to try to make a good movie out of it, all right? So when I tell you it's based on a true story, what I'm telling you is I'm rounding off some of the specifics and the details to kind of generalize it and hide the identity of who all and where all we're talking about. And this is a story that is some unspecified time in the past, so it could be, you know, any place, anywhere, long time ago. What I'm telling you is actually things that's happened over and over and over, okay? So please don't try to figure out, you know, who or where this is. I just want to share this with you to make the point. Here's this family in the community, and they have a need. And the church has worked with this family to try to bring them the gospel and and bring them into the church, okay? And there's been a limited degree of success with that, and along comes a point in time where that family experiences the tragedy of a death in their family, and they need a place to host the funeral. And they need a meal to feed their family, and they're all busy traveling in, and some are, are grieving, and, you know, they're busy with things that happen when you lose a loved one. So they need help. They need serving. And so they approach one of the families in the church and say, can you help us? And permission is commandeered to get to use the facilities. And this family that's had a, had a death, they're thankful for that, and they get to use the facilities. So this family in the church that was contacted starts reaching out to other, others in that congregation saying, all right, we've got an opportunity. These people need our help. We've got to get down and clean the building and get it ready. Well, I'm busy, you see, is the problem. I've got to go home and unfold all my roadmaps and refold them because I creased them wrong. Somebody else says, well, I'd love to be there, but I've got to re-grease the buttons on my garage door opener. I'm scared to death those things are going to stick. Somebody else says, I need to double-check for the third time to make sure I changed out the filters on my HVAC unit at the house. Speaking of, I need to do that when I get home. Everybody's busy. We can't help. We're sorry. It's a great opportunity to serve. We can't help. We're sorry. Well, can we, can we cook some food? Can we bring the thing? Because they got all these people, and they're coming in from out of town, and they need a meal. And you go back through the, we're busy, we're busy, we're busy, we're busy. And so what winds up happening is you've got one family that goes down and cleans the building by themselves, and they get it all ready, and they're on the phone with the family that has the need, and they're talking back and forth and making all the arrangements and reassuring them, don't worry, the church will take care of everything. And that family gets there, and they find a, a clean auditorium that's suitable for the purposes of the hour, and they joyfully use that. And then they go to a place where a meal has been abundantly applied, uh, supplied that's more than adequate for their needs, done by this family in the name of the church. Now, that grieving family, as far as they're concerned, that family they were dealing with the whole time, that's the church. Now, I know there are others there that are in the church, and they're the church too, but as far as that family is concerned, 
These people right here they've been talking to, these people that went to hold their hand while they were crying, these people that spent all that time on the phone with them, those people are the church. And that's what I mean by that last category. And you might have gathered then that part of at least the point of tonight's study is to help us to realize, hey, going to church is great, but it's important to be in the church, to be a part of the church. And it's not just important to be in the church or a part of the church, it's important to be involved. To live our lives in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see us as part of the face of the group of God's people. So, what if you're one of those that goes to church? Well, I want to tell you that's a good start. Some attend only occasionally as visitors. Some come regularly. <laughs> Some will do that for years and never obey the gospel, you know, or at least wait long years before they obey the gospel. And I don't want to recommend that. But I also want to say if you are visiting tonight or if you routinely come to church, that's a great start. That's important. We read about that sort of thing in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23 through 25, where he's talking about the assembly and how God wants our, our assemblies to be conducted. And he mentions the idea of people coming and visiting the assembly. He said, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesied and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now it seems to me this passage is kind of entertaining two kinds of visitors. One, it appears, is a member of the church, but they're uninformed. They're new, or maybe they've fallen away, or whatever. They're not deeply learned in the faith for whatever reason. But another kind of visitor that this passage imagines is an unbeliever. Somebody who's not a member of the church, but they come to church. And so Paul asks the congregation at Corinth to think about the effect and the impact of their assembly on those people that come, the one who might not be well-informed in the ways of Christ or the one who might not be in the church. Maybe they're just coming to church. And what's the hope? <coughs> the hope is when they come to church, they'll hear things taught. They'll hear songs sung. They'll hear prayers prayed. They'll receive spiritual edification that will be such a high degree that it will stir their hearts to want to be in the church to fall down on their face and worship God and report that God is truly among you, to be converted. <coughs> so if you're coming to church tonight, that's great, that's a great start, but understand, God has goals for you coming to church. And one of God's goals is that you will experience things that will make you want to be in the church, that will make you embrace the importance that Christ assigned to the church when he said, look, it's so important to me, I'm willing to die to set it up and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan in the grave to make it happen. And so when you embrace that importance, you'll hear the gospel and believe that gospel and obey that gospel, and then the Lord will place you in his church. That's what this passage 
envisions for you. That's God's purpose for you in coming to church. But if you come to church, I want to ask you what you're seeking. What do you come looking for? That might sound like an invasive question, but the nature of the question is such that it introduces something that's important for us to think about. It's pretty common in our culture for people to approach some church somewhere the same way we approach a business. You know, if if I go into a business considering buying their products or their services, I'm looking for certain things. I'm looking for friendliness. I'm looking for honesty and integrity. I'm looking for quality products or service. I'm looking for a reasonable price, not necessarily the cheapest, but one that fairly reflects the value that I place on their goods or services. There are certain things I'm looking for. And if those businesses don't provide those things, I may not go back. I mean, if, if they overcook my steak, who does that? You realize what an egregious offense that is? If these are people that overcook a steak, I, I'm not coming back here. That's terrible. I don't hang out with people that do that, and I don't, I'm not going to start doing business with people that do that. See, We have our ideas that are based on our personal preferences and things that we like and things that we assign importance to. And we go into businesses with that mindset. And some people come to the Lord's church with that mindset. They come in the door looking for what's here for me. What's in this for me? What are they willing to do for me? What programs do you have for me? In what way are you going to serve me? In what way are you going to amuse me? And church can, in that scenario, very easily become about me. And as you think about you and the church, understand that in a scenario like that, our goals have moved in a different direction than the Lord's goals. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul said to Timothy, if I'm delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Today, the church is the house of God. In Solomon's day, the house of God was a temple. Like back when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, it was a temple. But today, it's the church. So we're going to draw a comparison to what Solomon said about going to the temple to what we think of when we think about going to the house of God today, which today is the church. In Ecclesiastes 5 and 1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. You know, there's a message here. And Solomon's message is, when you go to the house of God, you go to listen, not to tell God how it's going to be. When you go to the house of God, you don't go with your demands, you go seeking His demands. And if you go to church the same way you go into a business with that hand on the hip of idea that they better cook my steak right or I ain't coming back, Whether or not you like the church is the smallest problem in that equation. 
The biggest problem in that equation is how does God feel about that attitude? And that ought to concern anybody because He's the one that will judge us on that final day. So let me plead with you and make this sincere appeal that when we go to church, as great a thing as that is, we make sure we don't go with the world's attitude of, all right, I'm here, ta-da, now make me happy before I go away. (laughs) Instead, let's go with a, a seeking attitude that's here to hear what the Lord wants from me. What are you seeking? Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9, Christ gives very sobering teaching to warn us about approaching the Lord in worship with a me attitude that's centered on what man wants. He said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here Jesus labeled worship as vain. If a person approaches that with a heart that's far from God and with practices that are according to what man wants rather than what God says. And it sounds to me like if somebody goes to church thinking, me, what are you going to do for me? This is all about me, kind of like we talked about. That that's not a heart that's near God. That's That's a heart that's near self. And that's not a heart that's all about what does God want. That's a heart that's all what about what I want. And that's recipe for vain worship. And if we're looking for what pleases us instead of looking for what pleases God, then that also tends towards the commandments of men. And that's not going to be something that pleases God. And that's worship that's vain. And He's the one we're here to please. We're not here to amuse each other or the world. We're here to please God. And this congregation and its leadership hopes in earnest that if you've come to church tonight, that you've come with that heart that sets self aside and says, I want to know what God wants me to do. And God wants all your heart, and He wants your pure worship done according to His will. And that's what this congregation is interested in. And I want to tell you, The top thing on their list is not pleasing the community here. They want to have a great relationship with the community, but their number one priority is to please God. And that's important because that's what matters. Well, but then there are those who are in the church. They are members. They have done what the people in Acts 2 decided. They've obeyed that gospel. And when they did, the Lord saved them and added them to his church. And I want to plead with you, if you've not done that tonight, you need to do that tonight because that's important. Some say, well, but membership in that circle, that doesn't really matter. That's not what the Bible says. In Ephesians 2 and 16, he talks about the the sinner whose relationship with God is broken. He talks about that person being reunited or reconciled with God. He said that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. This passage teaches that our reconciliation to God, our togetherness with God, exists in the Lord's body. And that is the church. That's the house of God. And that is the voice of God telling us being in the church matters. Being in the body matters. 
because that's where reconciliation with God exists. He did not say it exists outside His body. He did not promise to save outside His body. He told us very plainly that happens in the body. So while some are protesting, oh, the church can't save you, we understand the Bible teaches it's the Lord that saves you and it's the church that is the saved. It's not about whether or not the the church can save you. The church is the saved. And we've already read tonight that when a person is saved, the Lord adds them to His church. So the idea of being pleasing to God and not having any connection with the church The Scriptures teach us clearly enough that we have the advantage of knowing better than that, don't we? And that's a blessing to know the will of the Lord when the will of the world speaks so loudly against the will of the Lord. It matters to be in the church, so that's a good thing. But if you're in there and you're uninvolved, that's not. Some people that are in the church approach the church with that same mentality we talked about earlier with the visitor. Well, I'm here. What are you going to do for me? And if you don't do stuff enough, uh, uh, at least the way that I like, then, hey, I may not stick around. The God-serving heart is looking for work to do. The God-serving heart is saying, what does the Lord ask of me? What can I do for the Lord's people? How can I be a better part of the circle? instead of thinking that the circle orbits around me. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians about the Lord's vision for his body, he described an active body where every part is doing its share, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. He described the body of Christ here in terms that more or less use the human body and its natural functions to represent what the Lord expects of His church. And so it is with the human body. Every part has got to be doing its share. All of our vital organs, they've got to be busy doing the things that God has designed for them to do. Our skin, it's got to be busy, you know, holding us all together and stop the bleeding and protect us from disease and all the things that medical science tells us that skin is designed to do. Ugly as they might be, our toes have got to do their job. My toes right now, or at least for the moment, stopping me from falling on my face. I don't want to jinx myself, but so far they're working. And every step I take, my toes are very busy Saying, oh, we gotta, we got to keep him upright. And my face is saying, oh, please, oh, please. <laughs> because my face needs my toes to do their job. And every part of the body has got to be busy doing its part because the other parts of the body need it. And there are different things that compel us or cause us to get uninvolved. We'll talk about some of those kinds of things that relate to worldliness and disinterest, but I want to talk to you about one thing that I feel like I see a lot in the body, and that is people that just really believe they can't make that much of a difference, that I'm not talented like those people over there are, so nothing that I do will matter. 
Do not underestimate the value of the role that God has equipped you to play in His body. Even if you are just a toe, those other people that are the face need you. Okay? And they need you in a great way. And the Lord has made that clear in Ephesians 4, 16. Every part needs to do its share. Not long ago, I, I heard a story. It, it really made me feel happy to hear this story. I've shared it with a couple of people, and I want to share it with you. Somebody come to church. And there was somebody that caught them and greeted them as they came in, and they were polite, and they were loving, and they were friendly. And this was a person that couldn't lead a song if their life depended on it. They did not have the talent to put together or deliver lessons. We could go on and on about a lot of really important things that they weren't able to do. But they didn't sink back into a despair of, oh, well, I can't be as talented as those people. They just found something they could do. And something they could do was just be friendly. Don't underestimate the value of that. And so they went over and stood by the door. When someone came in and they were new, you know, they reached out and they shook hands and said hello and gave them their name and we're glad to see you. Come have a seat. It's simple. They, they didn't move heaven and earth. They didn't do anything splashy. You know, from the way they perceive their own talent, they're just sort of like a busy toe saying, let's just make sure it doesn't fall here, you know that lightly esteemed part of the body just struggling to do what it can do. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing they could do. That's just what they did in the moment. And those people were so impressed, that was a level of friendliness they hadn't seen anywhere else. And they'd been to several churches in town. And so before long, another part of the body comes along and is able to teach them the Scriptures because they had that talent. And then before long, these people obeyed the Gospel, and before long, they're involved. I wonder how much that part of that local body now esteems the value of just be friendly if that's all you've got. And that's not all you've got, but if that's all you had, just at least do that much. Don't underestimate the value of the small things. The places I go and the people that I visit with, over and over and over, I am encountering people and hearing from people whose lives were changed by little things. People just doing the simple things that seem small in the moment that become big in the heart that impacts it. Don't let yourself become uninvolved because you think you're not an important part of the body. Every part has to do its share. In Acts 8 and verse 4, when terrible persecutions came against the church at Jerusalem, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That just became an opportunity to spread the gospel. That is the epitome of making lemonade out of lemons. I mean, the church at Jerusalem was handed a terrible problem of all this heavy persecution. And so they scattered. But what did they do? Every part of the body did its share. So they all went different places talking about Christ. I'm pretty sure not everybody could stand up and preach like Peter, okay? I'm pretty sure not everybody had that gift that Philip had as he went places preaching. But everybody did something to help further the gospel of Christ. 
And so it spread. And maybe you've heard me use this illustration before, but that F effort to persecute the church and push it out of existence because the members were sold on this idea of everybody in the body doing their part because of that, because they lived that way, trying to wipe out the church by persecution was like trying to kill Bermuda grass by running a rototiller over it. After a little bit, you figure out you're just spreading it. If you go out to a patch of grass to cut a new garden, you'll experience that. You've got to do more than just tell it. It takes way more to kill it than that. And that's how Christianity is when everybody in the body is doing their share. Don't underestimate the value of your involvement. God wants you to be active in the church. But some aren't involved because of complacency. Revelation 3, 14 to 20 he wrote to the Laodiceans and said, The angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness might not, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand before the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That's a pretty powerful statement there. That's Jesus pouring his heart out to a congregation of his people, to a circle of his people. And he's saying, y'all think because you've got plenty that you're all right but you don't realize the level of your spiritual destitution. This about hot and cold and lukewarm water, if you're acquainted with the circumstances of the Laodicean city, you might know that that city was fed by aquifers like a lot of Roman towns were. There were springs nearby that poured forth hot water, and the aquifer carried those hot spring waters down to the city. And when that water was hot, fresh out of the springs, it had useful purposes, medicinal for bathing in. There are still springs in that area today that are still used that way. Once it got to the city, if they just collected it and then let it cool down to a cold temperature, they could drink it and receive value from it. But if you took it straight off the spigot when it was not hot like when it came out of the spring and not cold like when you cooled it down but kind of lukewarm, if you drank it, you'd immediately lose it. It wouldn't stay in you. And that's the imagery the Lord is using to tell them, look, you're kind of like, can I say that? I mean, this is pretty hard. You're kind of like useless water. I can't even stand to drink you. Now, that does sound harsh, doesn't it? And that's why Jesus followed that up towards the end of his admonition to them. 
You know, I rebuke and chasten those that I love. I'm telling you this because I care about you. That's what Jesus said. He wants them to be enthused. He wants them to realize their destitution and their need for a Savior and their need to be involved in enthusiastically serving their Savior. So much so, he says, look, I'm standing outside your door, banging on the door. This is not Christ telling a sinner, I'm standing at the door knocking. All you got to do is ask me into your heart and I'll save you. He's talking to Christians that were lukewarm. He's talking to Christians that were unenthused. He's talking to Christians that were complacent in their service. He's talking to Christians that were in the church, but they weren't really the face of the church to the world around them. Because they just didn't care enough. And he's banging on the door of their heart saying, let me in. You could be a child of God that reaches a level of complacency that you push Christ out of your heart. And he warns such a person, you're not useful to me. I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's a dreadful admonition, but needed sometimes. Don't let that be you as it relates to the church. In 1 John 2 and 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, you can see Christians come and you can see Christians go. And I'll just tell you right now, thinking about this passage, I'm thinking about an auditorium full of Christians. 45 years ago. And so far as I know, every one of them's gone. Because they love the world. And so that's where they went. It looked great on the surface. It looked awesome. But when it come time to help that family that had a funeral need, when it come time to greet that person that visited, when it come time to plug in whatever job you're capable of doing, everybody had to stay home full roadmaps and lubricate the buttons on their garage door openers. For some, it was golf. For some, it was motorcycles. For some, it was cars. For some, it was jobs. For some, it was sports. For some, it was I don't know what. But for everybody, it was something besides Jesus. And that's not what brings people to the Lord. That's what drives people away. And it starts with a person who loves the world. Then there are those that are the church. The kind of involved people we talked about very early in the study and the story of illustration that I gave you. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27, he describes Christians with lives that are woven together. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. You remember at the beginning of the study, I told you that this whole you and the church looks at kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. You is very individualistic, whereas the church is a collective concept. There it is in verse 27. The body of Christ, the circle, the church, you, and then individually, you. So this is another context 
where the Lord compares his people to a physical human body. And that's all part of an appeal for us to be woven together. He uses as an example, is there a problem in this person's life? Well, let's experience the emotion of that problem with them. Let's grieve with them. Let's sorrow on their behalf. Is there some great thing that's happened in this person's life? Let's go and rejoice with them. Let's share in the joy of that. Our, wives should, our lives should be woven together. That's God's plan for His people to be a family where we care about one another. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Fairly shortly after the church at Thessalonica had been established, we find Paul writing to them here, one of his earliest epistles. And he says, I want you folks to grow and abound in love for each other. Just like we love you, we want y'all to love each other. Later on the epistle, he thinks this is so important, he brings it up again. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and 10. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are all in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So he takes back up this theme of love, and he says, Y'all love each other, and I know you already do. Increase it. We want more. It's not very many days that I'll let myself have gravy. One time my wife was serving gravy on my plate, and I said, I want more. And she put a little more on there, very tiny, half-spoon, pathetic, feeble, lonely gravy. And I said, you don't understand. I want more. She said, that's a lot of gravy. I said, you're underestimating how much I love gravy. I want more. You know. Give me that bowl. (laughs) It's hard to get enough gravy, isn't it? When you love it. The Lord is looking at the church and He's saying, look, I know you love each other, but you folks need to understand how I value this. I want you to love each other even more. And so they do. And He said, that's great. I want more. Can we ever really love enough? That's something He wants us to grow in. That's lives that are woven together. That's a family that a lost person can feel a very understandable desire to want to be a part of that family. Those that are the church are active. Titus 2.14, speaking of Christ's sacrifice who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. The Lord saved us to make us hard workers. In Titus 3 and 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. They're to be zealous for every good work. Now they're to be ready for every good work. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain 
good works. These things are good and profitable to man. He said, be zealous for it. Be ready for it. Be careful to maintain it. It sounds like Paul is trying to get Titus to make Christians on Crete understand God values us filling our hearts and our lives with good works. He wants us active. He wants us supportive of one another. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. He wants us to encourage and build up each other. You might think, well, I'm a new Christian, or I'm young in the faith, and I'm looking over here at Brother Jones, and he's been an elder for several years, and there's nothing I can do for him. He can encourage me, but I'm feeble in the faith. I can't encourage him. Yeah, you can, and I'm going to tell you, he wants you to, and he needs you to. Well, I don't know what to say. Then just pat him on the back and make eye contact. I promise you it'll help him. Because there may come a day that him or one other, you know, saint that's been living faithful for years, that they're having a hard day and they hadn't bothered to share, and it's really been rough, and the world's been working against them, and all they need is a kind eye and a happy hand. Am I right? And they feel refreshed and renewed. You don't have to have magical paragraphs piled upon paragraphs of knowing what to say to help them. Just care about each other and reach out to one another and help each other. That's what it means to be the church. And that's how the Lord wants us to be. In Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We talked about this passage last night, didn't we? And we learned the importance of storing up heavenly treasures by serving the Lord. And I want you to notice the key to the heart that he gave us here. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. The Lord is teaching us how to redirect where our heart's desires are with these words. If you want to value the church more, then put more of the treasures of your time and your labors into the church. And the more you do that, the more it'll mean to you. And if you expend that energy on the world, then you'll value the world more. So turn your energies towards spiritual things and towards the church. And the more you do that and the longer you do that, the more tenderly you'll love the circle of God's people, the more that to the world you will be the church. What about you and the church tonight? Where do you stand with the circle of God's people? If you're not a Christian, you need to become one. The congregation here is ready to assist you in that. If you are a Christian and you need the church's prayers, your elders here are ready to assist you with that. If we can help you in either way, please come while we stand and sing.